and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I am your host, Michael Overby. Uh, nothing and nobody. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a software engineer who's become interested in legal theory over the last year, and one of my favorite people to read is one Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law, who this time is a guest. We're here to discuss one of my favorite papers of his, Plagiarism is Not a Crime. Hey, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. So, as you know, I'm a really big admirer of your work, and in general, and I especially love this article, which is really clever and really provocative at the same time. But before we start talking about the substance of the article itself, I was wondering if you could spend a little time, you know, uh, framing up your discussion of copyright and copyright policy and uh, what exactly is plagiarism? Right. I think that's that's sort of the core question right there, because you can't ask the question of how you should think about plagiarism before before you know what it is. And the reality is that I think the way that people think about plagiarism as kind of a social concept or a set of social norms uh, is very context-specific. So a behavior that might be considered plagiaristic in one social context would be totally socially acceptable and even unremarkable in in a different context. And then to complicate matters even, even further, I think that within social contexts, there's often a sort of underspecification of what people mean by plagiarism. So in in the paper, I sort of tried to limit the degree of confusion by focusing the majority of the discussion on one particular social context where plagiarism sees or tends to see a greater degree of specification for better or for worse, and maybe not necessarily uh, with the ultimate result of any particular amount of actual clarity, but you know in in an academic context is where people I think um, think about and apply plagiarism norms uh, more commonly than in other contexts. And as a consequence, um, there have been sort of, to a greater or less degree, more robust kind of definitions of what kind of conduct is placed in the basket that's referred to as as plagiaristic in in context um that that said i think broadly speaking the the sort of most canonical definition of plagiarism is unattributed copying right so really kind of the essence of the way that most people think about plagiarism has to do with uh, the lack of attribution and, by extension, the enforced and enforceable duty to attribute. Uh, The problem is that frequently when attribution is required and when it isn't is often underspecified. And in addition, certain methods of attribution are sometimes considered potentially plagiaristic, even if there isn't an intentional or actual lack of functional attribution to the original speaker. So unattributed copying, and people think that this is wrong. Um, What do they think it's wrong as opposed to 
you know, like uh, we talk a lot about uh, copyright, which is probably going to come up a lot in this conversation. What do you think the moral difference is with attribution? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and important question that gets at the relationship between our concepts of copyright ownership and literary ownership and the activity we refer to and in some context context prohibit as as plagiarism at least in part because uh historically and actually I think in a contemporary sense as well a lot of people have a tendency to use copyright infringement and plagiarism as synonyms for each other, even though they describe, at least in theory, uh, different categories of behavior. So, I mean, I think one of the ironies here is that for many people, in many contexts, attribution is conceptualized as effectively the most important aspect of literary ownership, right? So the right to claim an economic interest in what you produce is considered important, but the sort of moral rights associated with having works attributed to you as the author, in many cases, uh, is considered even more important and even more fundamental to literary ownership or ownership of other kinds of works of authorship. And of course, the irony there is that broadly speaking, there really isn't a, a copyright right <laughs> to attribution, right? I mean, in a certain limited context, yes, for, you know, the authors of works of visual art under Vera, there is a kind of attenuated uh, attribution right that that does exist. But broadly speaking, in most contexts in which we think about plagiarism taking place, attribution is not a right that comes along with copyright ownership. Although in practice, it's a right that copyright owners can still enforce, not because it's an exclusive right given to them, but because in many contexts, they can refuse to permit certain kinds of otherwise infringing uses of their work in the absence of, of attribution, right? So there's a kind of de facto attribution right that comes along with, with copyright protection insofar as the copyright owner can say, look, I'll let you use this work in certain contexts, but only if you attribute it to me. And if you don't attribute it to me, then I'll assert one of these alternative rights against you in order to effectively claim an attribution right. Now, the problem is that, of course, the scope of copyright protection is is limited, right? It doesn't cover every aspect or every element of a work of authorship. And it has a lot of exceptions that come along with it, you know, prominently among them, the fair use exception. But there's, you know, there's other statutory exceptions out there as well. And so there are a certain set of contexts in which copyright owners and the creators, authors of, of literary and other forms of work writ, writ large, want to be able to assert an attribution right, but don't actually have the legal right under the Copyright Act to assert an attribution right. And I think... Uh, Sort of the intuition behind the paper, as it were, was that uh, plagiarism norms emerge predominantly within those spaces, right? Spaces in which the authors of works want to be able to force other people to do things when they don't necessarily have a 
explicit legal statutory hang handle to hang on to. And so plagiarism norms and the kind of the shaming activities and the kind of quasi legal uh, enforcement that comes along with, with plagiarism norms in different contexts enables the authors of these works to effectively claim attribution in circumstances where they might not be able to and to aspects of their work that they might not be able to. And the, I think the, 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 the kind of the, the core sort of examples of that are something like, you know, claiming an attribution right in ideas, for example. Right. So in many academic contexts in particular, right, there's an understanding that copying somebody else's ideas without attribution is plagiaristic and therefore a bad thing to do and something that is correctly prohibited and correctly punished when sniffed out by um, by someone in a position to enforce it. But of course, under the Copyright Act, ideas are explicitly excluded from copyright protection. So at least in theory under the Copyright Act, uh, the law actually says that authors don't own this and by extension lack the right to force other people to attribute under the circumstances because it's not an element of the work that there's actually any ownership in. And even more so by extension, right? People who are copying ideas are not copying copyrightable material, right? So in theory, they should be able to do that with impunity and let and yet plagiarism norms develop to say that you know in this context we are going to give what amounts to an extra legal right for authors to assert ownership over elements of their work that the law says they don't own and you spend a lot of time talking about how that affects the academy and you said this is a extra legal right that technically shouldn't be enforceable but Clearly, as we'll see in the news, or uh, if you're paying attention to um, maybe your school's faculty roster, uh, people can lose their jobs mm. over plagiarism. So doesn't that, in essence, uh, so like you mentioned extra legal, but like, doesn't that make plagiarism a reality, like a, just a fact of life for the academic yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, you know, as a practical reality, irrespective of what the Copyright Act says, if your institution can punish you for something, whether, you know, you're a student or a academic employee, um, then your legal right to engage in that activity is is pretty limited. I mean, I do think it would be potentially amusing to, you know, sort of mount a First Amendment campaign <laughs> against university plagiarism policies. Um, you know, of course, you'd have to do it in a way that was very explicit and upfront about the nature of the project you were engaged in, in order to make it a purely technical violation, as opposed to one that could, you know, sort of be pursued with any sort of appearance of of legitimacy, but it would, be, it would be fun to see how the kind of the tension between those, um, you know, sort of beliefs in the obligation to attribute and corresponding beliefs in the kind of sacrosanct nature of free expression under the First Amendment might, you know, kind of come into tension 
with with each other. And, and you know, and I do think a, a non-trivial number of contemporary artists uh, really sort of push as hard as they can against the sort of liminal boundaries between those two things. I'm thinking of someone like, you know, Kenneth Goldsmith, who does a lot of artwork and a lot of writing that is kind of explicitly intended to challenge ideas about the uh, legitimacy of plagiarism norms and the justification for prohibiting unattributed copying. Of course, in his case, you know, I mean, the attribution is still implicit in the sense that he's not trying to mislead people about the nature of the relationship between him and the creation of of the work in in question. He's not trying to claim that he wrote, you know, the New York Times on that day That's and then right. published it as a book. That's right. That's right. That's right. And yet, you know, it's still a a technical violation of the plagiarism rules. Now, from you know, from from a purely normative perspective, I mean, I guess you know, I try to stay agnostic as as a scholar, right? And so, as you know, right, there are kind of two kind of camps or ways of thinking. Too broadly speaking, two kind of camps or ways of thinking about the the justification of of copyright uh, rules. And you know, and I part of the paper was intended to suggest. You know, well, I mean, if these models of justification are appropriate to think about copyright, surely this kind of close analog plagiarism ought to be susceptible to analysis on on the same terms. So then the kind of the challenge I set up was, you know, if we think about plagiarism norms in a consequentialist framework, the way that we say that we do uh, think about copyright rules. In other words, you know, the idea being we create these rules in order to generate a social benefit and any benefit to the author or copyright owner is merely incidental to the kind of net benefit that we think we're generating for the public writ large. Um, then I think plagiarism norms become uh, difficult to justify. Right, because they seem to expand the effective uh, scope of the property rights of authors beyond what might necessarily be necessary for them to engage in the production of this kind of work in the first place. And in addition, without offering obvious benefits to to public welfare, like without obviously encouraging people to generate additional works of authorship, right? Now, of course, if you were to take an alternative sort of deontological moral rights view of copyright ownership, then I think plagiarism norms kind of flow very naturally from that kind of position. In fact, if anything, they may even be more strongly justified under some moral rights views, right? I mean, if the justification for creating copyright is that authors have a personal relationship to the expressions of their autonomy, well, you know, nothing could be more central to that expression and to that connection than attribution of the work to to its author, right? So I mean, you know, if you find those kinds of justifications compelling, then fine, you know, plagiarism norms seem relatively well um, sort of aligned, <laughs> as it were, with those ways of thinking about about justification. But the reality is that, you know, as a general matter, as a constitutional matter, as a sort of prevailing norms matter, we talk about copyright in, in consequentialist terms. So why shouldn't we think 
of of plagiarism norms in the same way. Yeah, right. And I think that's interesting that the general public understanding of these concepts of copyright and plagiarism tend to flow from, you know, the moral rights, uh, you would say in this paper, deontological mm. perspective, considering that basically the entire history of copyright as a British and then American conception, not necessarily burn, although, you know, burn was trying to balance the power between publishers and authors and get people paid while I think from my reading, the more overarching reason for copyright to exist has been to get things out into the world for people to read, you know, to educate, to, uh, oh, what, what does the constitution say? Uh, like, uh, prom yeah. promote, promote the arts. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> arts and sciences. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, and, and, and I did really try in the paper to sort of identify two different scenarios within sort of the scope of academic, the kind of in academic environment in which plagiarism norms are operationalized, right? So I think, I think typically we think of plagiarism ideas or plagiarism norms as going to essentially the producers of knowledge intended for public consumption, right? So there's the idea that, you know, scholars shouldn't plagiarize because well, because whatever reason, and I think part of the project then is figuring out, well, how, you know, what shouldn't scholars do, right? And maybe we should define plagiarism uh, in relation to what we legitimately think scholars shouldn't do, as opposed to defining it in the abstract and then saying, we're going to go out and hunt for people who are doing something we've decided that we don't like, right? So, you know, I mean, part of the project was to say, look, um, when is it, when, if ever, is it justified to apply plagiarism norms to scholars, you know, producing work for public consumption and sort of, you know, it was a little, I'll grant that it was a little tongue in cheek, right? But, you know, part of the observation of the paper was, you know, typically people say, well, you know, scholars should attribute because by attributing, they direct readers to other sources that will be valuable and help readers understand the material that that they're trying to learn about. Well, you know, in many cases, that's true, right? I mean, ideally, you put citations into a paper in order to provide additional contextual information for your readers so that they can better, you know, it it, it reflects your process in arriving at your conclusions. It lets your readers know, you know, maybe what you've read and what you haven't, right? And it provides a resource for readers who want to learn more about the subject. But it's not just analytically true that the fact that you read something or the fact that somebody else wrote something on the subject means that it's going to be helpful for your readers to provide a resource to them. I mean, you know, there's very real information costs, transactions costs associated with that, right? And I can say that as an academic reader, right? I mean, when I look at footnotes, I don't necessarily know for sure that the sources being, uh, I guess, recommended to me in the footnotes are actually any good or not, right? And, you know- Or if, if they've I, been done by a person, you know, like- you, you, <laughs> Right, well, that's- Because <laughs> you mentioned in the paper yeah. that it's possible to, you know, make automatic- yeah. Citations. Yeah. 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 I mean, it could just be 
it could just be gibberish, right? And you know, gar you know, the programmers say, right? Like garbage in, garbage out, right? I mean, it's like if it's not useful, then why should I go out and look for it? And isn't it just a cost on the reader if we say to academic authors, well, you have to cite everything relevant and you have to cite everything that you read, whether or not it's any good, and whether or not you recommend that your readers actually look at it, right? In other words, the simple fact that someone had an idea before somebody else did doesn't and really shouldn't necessarily give them any ownership interest in the sort of attribution of that idea. Because imagine a circumstance in which they express the idea extremely poorly, right? And then somebody else subsequently expressed it quite beautifully, right? Why should we say that the person who expressed the idea quite poorly should get, you know, primacy of recognition in in relation to the idea? I mean, that's actually, that's bad for readers. So the, to the extent we think that it's good for readers to learn something, right? <laughs> Shouldn't we say, actually, never cite that person, right? Because we want to discourage people from reading bad work, Right. So, I mean, like, look, when it comes to scholars, the, the point of the paper, although, I mean, obviously I tried to push it a little bit for the, for the purpose of making the paper more fun to read and to write, you know, the argument is not that you shouldn't cite things. It's that there shouldn't be an assumption of an obligation to cite things in all contexts and to attribute all things in all contexts. There should be an assumption that, you know, think about your reader's needs and provide information that's useful and helpful to your readers and refrain from providing information that isn't. And that, you know, I mean, that strikes me as not a particularly, you know, implausible right? <laughs> way of, right? We want it. If the, if the idea is to make people better off and impart knowledge, then, you know, let's shoot like to maximize our likelihood of, of reaching that goal. Now, in a lot of ways, I feel like, and, and this is something I, I really think I might return to, is that I feel like, and I increasingly feel like, the more valuable observation is, is thinking about the way we reflexively use the concept of plagiarism and apply academic plagiarism norms in contexts where they may not really make any sense, right? So it's one thing to talk about academics producing scholarly work for public consumption and to say, well, you know, we think that there are certain sort of social norms associated with that that you really ought to observe. And if you don't observe them, you know, you should expect people to be unhappy about your failure to like, you know, scratch everyone else's back. It strikes me as very strange to apply those identical norms to students who are not engaging in generating academic work for public consumption. In fact, in most cases, the students are generating work that will be graded anonymously by a professor uh, evaluating whether or not they internalize the various lessons they were supposed to learn in class and then thrown away right? I mean, most students don't revisit the work that they generated. And if they do, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I wrote oh something. God. Yeah. That's like, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's I, I'm actually doing that as a project right now, basically uh, going through my papers and typing them up to preserve them. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, I definitely uh, mourn the ones that I've lost from this process you're mentioning where, you know, we just toss it and throw it away and I, I feel like that makes people value the writing less but then the ones that survive 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I did I did find something a while ago that I wrote with a sadly now deceased friend of mine when we were 12 or 13 and it was all about it was all about gangsters. We did reports on the depression era gangsters. Um I, I really I still can't believe that they, that they let us get away with that <laughs> in school, but whatever, right? Um but yeah, and you know, and and it really strikes me as troubling on a number of different levels, right? So, from a pedagogical standpoint, right, it seems to me the question we ought to be asking is, what kinds of practices help students learn, right? And there strikes me as being no evidence that rigidly enforced attribution norms help students learn the kinds of skills that we want students to learn. And in fact, I think that there's pretty strong evidence that those attribution norms actually prevent beneficial student learning right right and 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 so by in by enforcing them so rigidly right we're actually producing worse outcomes and i and i just why would we want to do that right well let's uh i'm not sure the audience will understand exactly what you're getting at um what's just like an example of plagiarism aiding a student in the uh, classroom context Right. Well, I mean, so the most common example that that's given is is what's called patch writing, mm-hmm. right? So this is the idea that when students are learning how to produce written material, and I would say even more broadly, when students are learning how to engage in the rhetoric of any new discipline, right? So like this is something that could be happening with elementary school students learning how to write for the first time, with high school students learning how to write an essay, with college students learning how to write a paper, with law students learning how to write for a legal and or legal academic audience, right? Cutting and pasting from other sources, assembling materials that have been produced by others, right? There's really solid research showing that that is the most efficient and effective way to learn how to write. And it kind of it just seems it's just so right. Obvious, it's just it's right? imitation. I mean, how do you learn? Like, exactly, exactly, exactly. It's learning by imitation. That's how people learn. We don't say like when a when a art student goes to a museum to like make cop. I mean, like we to make copies of paintings. You know, we consider that that's how you learn. Right, you learn by imitation, and then you generate your own work later. And as a student, I, it seems to me quite obvious that there ought to be a cordoned-off space where learning by imitation, as an effective educational pedagogical technique, is protected. But that's not what we do. What do we do if students learn by imitation? Well, we we like brutally punish them for their own, for quote unquote, for their own benefit. Right. And I'm, I just feel like this is just, it's just, there's kind of a sickness to it. Right. The idea that we would be like narking out our students with these automated programs to detect any kind of most likely beneficial, like cutting and pasting that they engage in in order to generate material and learn, learn how to do what we want them to do. What do we do? We like, Call them to task, right? Punish them severely, give them an F in the class, or flunk them out of school, or suspend them. And like, who, who is this supposed to benefit? I mean, what is the re- what, what's the rationale for this? And it like, and what what makes me really uncomfortable about it is that the people who enforce these rules don't don't even feel bad about it because right? it's, it's I mean, just normal actually, to them, you know. Well, and, and not only that, they feel affirmatively good. Right. Like I caught a student 
quote unquote cheating, right? And I'm going to stop them from cheating. And I'm like, my response to this, you caught a student learning <laughs> and, and you should be encouraging that, not punishing them and humiliating them for engaging in that kind of behavior. And I think there's something even more kind of corrosive about it, which is the incoherence of these norms, especially when applied in this context where they don't make any sense, actually makes students less respectful. Of what the rules are. Like uh, one of your examples in the paper that uh, uh, really kind of like hit me because it's, it's funny, but it's, you know, it's obvious is that the University of Kentucky copied the uh, plagiarism policy of another university and published it as her own without attribution. So ergo plagiarism, yeah. but yeah. also, you know, it has, yeah. it has holes that you yeah. poke it, into it uh, left and right. That uh, well, sort of thing. Is- and I'm glad you pointed that out, Mike, because this is like one of my my kind of go-to examples of the incoherence of plagiarism norms, right? So the academic defenders of plagiarism norms in the course of, in their mind, legitimizing their project will say things like, oh, the irony of universities plagiarizing things themselves. I mean, like you say, look at this. Oh, this university went out and found another university's plagiarism norm, uh, plagiarism policy and copied it as its own without attribution to the other university. And my response to that is like, what are you talking about, right? I mean, the purpose of a plagiarism policy, if anything, right, is to convey information about what's permitted and not permitted to students in a coherent and consistent way. And if the other university has a quote-unquote good plagiarism policy, whatever we think that means, well, then we should be encouraging other universities to copy it, right? Variation is is not a benefit. And I find this even more ironic when it comes to law schools, right? Because, I mean, we're lawyers. And, like, there's an entire like an entire enterprise out there of bodies of lawyers generating model rules, which we want people, we want jurisdictions to copy. That's the whole reason they're produced. We'd say to people, here's the rules you should adopt. We've spent lots of time putting these together, you know, just adopt these, these best practices. And like, everyone's kind of sad when the jurisdictions make changes, because when they make changes, they usually make it worse. Right. So like, I mean, the idea that this would be, this would be trotted out, as an example of, you know, a sort of lapse in a university's own application of play. I mean, I just find this bizarre. Like, what do you think these policies are for? And, and, and it really reflects to me the way in which people are, many people in an academic context specifically, and I think this translates to other contexts as well, are just so aggressively unreflective about what they're trying to accomplish when they engage in plagiarism policing, as it were. So, Sorry, I get a little animated. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I wish I could be right there with you. I, I don't, like, I've been um, kind of quiet these days. I don't know. But uh, so like, I, I think that, you know, all the problems you've mentioned here, like the incongruities and, and you go more in the paper and it, it's kind of, it may be a little bit easier to talk about uh, plagiarism in, in terms of uh, the academy and uh, even students, although although that example is hard for the reasons you specified. But then, like, take this out into the um, quote unquote real world. As much as I don't like to separate the two, but 
another example that you give, and I'm sure all of us could think of uh, an example where we read in the paper or something of a author who was quote unquote caught plagiarizing another young adult uh, novel writer. And mm. she got dropped from a book deal. Her name is, you know, in the paper and uh, mm-hmm. will, will she ever get another book deal to do what she loves again um, for, for having, yeah. Uh, maybe Patch wrote, like maybe done something like it. It, it, it I mean, I don't want to answer the question for you, but like it, it doesn't make sense to me in in the same way. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I I one hundred percent agree with you, and and I find the justifications so kind of make weight and and uncompelling. Right. So people say things like, oh, well, it's academic fraud or it's literary fraud. Somebody's passing off somebody else's work as their own. And so the reader is being cheated, you know, and there's this, there's this, you know, there's this attempt to provide a kind of high minded justification for the treatment that gets meted out to these people. But then you see what they're actually accused of having done. And it's like, well, for one thing, this is a, a form of literary production with long history. Right. Like what, sep- right? what separates this like, from I mean, fair use? Yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe well, in a specific like, case, but it, like in, in general, as like a bright line rule. I mean, it, it almost always actually is fair use in my experience. And more than that, it's like if 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 this was good enough for Shakespeare, then you know, isn't it good for good enough for somebody writing young adult novels? I mean, come on, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, Shakespeare lifted stuff left and right. Nobody says this was terribly plagiarized material, and in fact, that sort of patch writing combination move was something that was perfectly acceptable until quite recently, right? And then you see these people kind of policing things like, you know, story elements in genre fiction. It's like, this is, it's it's in the name, right? This is work intended to be reflective of a genre. And if you depart from the genre too much, it won't be effective within the genre itself, right? So, I mean, like, where are readers looking for the value here? And was any reader of this this allegedly quote unquote plagiarized book negatively affected by it. I mean, my assumption would be that most readers would say to themselves, Oh gee, right. I mean, I read that book and I really liked it. And lo and behold, there's somebody else who has a really similar one. I bet I'll like that too. <laughs> right. I mean, well, more is more, right. I mean, why should we be upset about this? I, I just find it really hard. I find it really hard to wrap my head around except in so far as it's about people claiming their turf, right? And except in so far as it's about people wanting to claim ownership and wanting to claim the enforced respect of others, as it were. And I guess that's the part where I find the kind of, that's the part of like, plagiarism norms that I find deeply hypocritical, right? And and what makes it even worse to me is that it's a hypocrisy that justifies its own cruelty, right? Because as you say, the consequences of, you know, an effective accusation of plagiarism are career death, right? This person will never get to be a writer again, at least in the context that they want to. And for what purpose, right? Just to sort of make some other person feel good 
about themselves, like to make some other person feel like, you know, I was a cop and I was the right, it was the right thing for me to do. And I'm like, don't be a cop, man. Right. Nobody likes cops. <laughs> Sorry. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, that's just wrong. That's just, I mean, I just, I, you know, and like the idea that someone would not only punish someone without justification, cruelly punish someone without justification in that way, but then expect me to applaud them for it. I mean, I'm sorry, but no, right? right. No, I won't do that. Right. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to call you to the carpet on that. You know, um, I just can't. And, and then doesn't that, uh, raise the question, uh, do you think plagiarism should be defined at all? Like to, to me, it uh, mm. draws me back to another episode mm. of this show that I was listening to before uh, with uh, – I wrote her name down uh, – Carissa Byrne Hessick's uh, Common Law Crimes mm. uh, thing where potentially, you know, the fact that we changed our system to focus more on codification instead of uh, common law and uh, judicial, you know, leniency ended up making the system more unfair because of how it was – how everything became treated as a bright line rule and – how, you know, the judge's decision is quote unquote made for them already. Um, yeah. So like, what do you, what do you yeah. think? Like, do we need plagiarism? Yeah. You know, that's actually a really, that's actually a really deep question, <laughs> I think. Um, and I appreciate you referencing uh, Carissa's paper because I thought, I thought that was really fascinating. The sort of distinction she made in the sort of um, between the, the the sort of justification or like yeah, the justification of like kind of looking at punishing criminal behavior through the lens of the common law or through the lens of statutory law, and which one would cause punishment to be more sleep, more closely aligned with our ultimate policy goals. And, and and I think the irony of of plagiarism norms in an academic context, but in other contexts as well, is that they're sort of the worst of both worlds, right? I mean, most, if not all universities or colleges have fairly robust plagiarism policies, uh, at least robust in the sense of having been written out, even if they don't necessarily make any kind of practical or implementation oriented sense. But then at the same time, my experience has been that the people charged with enforcing those policies often have a very kind of quasi common law conceptualization of what they're doing, right? Often to the point where they don't even really refer to the underlying kind of written policy that ostensibly sets out the position of the institution. So in other words, you know, to put it kind of bluntly, my experience has been that people kind of have a sense of what kind of behavior they think is prohibited and they're going to they're going to cry plagiarism when they see that behavior irrespective of of what the actual policy says, which in a lot of cases just makes it even worse. That reminds right? me because to the extent uh, that reminds me mm -hmm. of an, another paper you wrote um, about obscenity law in general. Like, uh, mm. uh, you know, I know it when I see it. Really, just means that uh, you know it follows the the yeah. person's own mores. But uh, go on. 
Yeah, no, I, that's you know, and I've been I've been meaning to go back and do a whole paper on Potter Stewart's. I know it when I see it. I mean, I think it's such a rich sort of phrase that can mean so many different things and in so many different contexts. And, and and I think you're absolutely right, right? And I and, I, and that that this is very much the way that plagiarism enforcers think about plagiarism. It's like I know it when I see it. And I'm going to punish it irrespective of what the quote unquote law, meaning the university policy actually says. And this is, you know, to the extent that students actually read and try to comprehend the university plagiarism policy. And honestly, good luck. Man. Yeah, those I mean, syllabuses like, I totally read. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and beyond that, like, I mean, like, look, I tried to parse through the policies and I was like, I'm a law professor and I don't know what this prohibits and what it doesn't. Right. And as far as I can tell, the University of Kentucky policy says that you're allowed to ask people for advice on your work, but you're not allowed to, to follow it. I'm like, that doesn't, that just strikes me as uh, unlikely intention right <laughs> yeah. i mean but a that's what a little reading says right so i mean like to the extent the students can you know read the policies in the first place right the fact that someone would then go out and accuse them of a a violation that isn't doesn't even fit within the scope of the policy itself and pursue it i mean i just find that bizarre you know it's like the worst elements of a kind of a statutory regime and a common law regime, right? It's got all the rigidity of a statute and all of the unpredictability of of the common law. I mean, why? Well, maybe maybe it would help to to uh turn to something where um perhaps a plagiarism policy might actually even help in the classroom setting, which I I think maybe you uh come at this more from a legal uh writing perspective but uh, i used to be mm. a uh, a teacher assistant uh, at the university of washington tacoma and it comes back to what you were saying like what are we actually trying to teach them right and in, mm. in that context as a beginning programming um, class what we're trying to teach them is the thought process of programming it's it's not always a solitary activity mm. but a uh but uh kind of at the end of the day, you do kind of go it alone on at least like individual issues. Like you, you ask mm. questions in real life, but it, it it's also a very different kind of skill than writing where, you know, people kind of do it all the time and uh, it, it it can be as informal as you want. Like, I mean, when somebody, like when somebody says plagiarism, they just know what it means. Mm. It's a very deterministic thing, you know, setting down to a problem where you're telling them to write this so that it, it does this. And in that context, um, when, you know, one student has done the work of doing the problem solving and writing the diagrams and like all that sort of thing. And, uh, another student just takes their example then has, has any learning gone there for the second student when they're just, they're copying, um, the other person's work. I'm, I'm, I don't think so. And I think, Again, maybe it's different than the uh, audience you were talking about, but um, it, it's not exactly pair programming when somebody when mm. somebody copies in that sense in that in that context. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, and I totally agree with you, right? I mean, th- this is a totally fair point, right? I mean, and and I think it's consistent with what I was trying to argue in the paper, although I think I wasn't as clear about that part of it as I should have been. And I'm actually very fortunate. I'm going to have an opportunity to revisit this paper for a conference at University of New Hampshire. So um, this is a very helpful process for me for sort of, you know, thinking about what I did well and what I didn't do so well <laughs> in 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 the initial paper but but I think that that's totally I think that's totally right right I mean the goal when it comes to students is learning right and when we talk about quote unquote plagiarism in relation to students we should be thinking about it as a different category Right. And we should give it a new name that reflects what we want to accomplish, which is learning. Right. And you're absolutely right. You know, if a student copies something unreflectively, right, without asking themselves, you know, what elements am I using? Why am I using these elements as opposed to some other elements? Right. If they just copy something and turn it in as their assignment. Right. Well, to my mind, the pedagogical problem is that they didn't learn anything. Right. And that's a shame. Right, the whole reason students are at school is to learn something, and they're cheating themselves if they don't actually do projects and just kind of phone it in and turn something in where they didn't think about it and didn't work hard. Because the only way you learn anything is by doing things you don't know how to do yet. Right? I mean, learning should be hard because if it's not hard, then you're typically not really learning anything. But I find it bizarre that we would say, okay right? This student has done something that caused them to fail to learn. And what we're going to do as a consequence of that is suspend them or expel them or give them a, an F grade as opposed to saying, do it over again and do it right and learn something, right? I mean, the goal is learning <laughs> to my <laughs> mind. Right? I mean, the, whole reason, yeah, the whole reason we're here is to help the student get from point A to point B, right? And I don't understand how I'm supposed to understand calling them out and punishing, severely punishing them is a learning experience other than to the extent that they've learned that their professors can be really cruel and their institutions can be really uncaring. And I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure that's a lesson I'm really that excited about teaching to my students. Oh, that the world is unfair. I mean, I yeah, right. I mean, like there's lots of opportunities to to learn about that, you know? I mean, like I'd like to live in a world where I work a little harder at benefiting students than 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 punishing them, you know? I mean, it was funny too, like I mean, like I will confess, I have done no programming since I was probably an elementary school, junior high oh, school. Man, that's early. <laughs> and and this this was a long time ago, back in the day when um, when computer classes in uh, in junior high and high school were taught by typewriting professors because you know computers have a keyboard and it's the same thing. Keyboard, yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> obviously, obviously, the appropriate person to have come do a computer class is the typing instructor. Um, and, and I, and I will say that, like, I mean, my experience of like learning basic programming was all about, you know, reading what other people had done and lifting bits and pieces from it to try to kind of understand the structure of what a program 
look like. And ironically, actually, the typing instructor who they had teaching the class had never taken a real computer class himself and had this kind of cubistic idea about programming that involved a lot of go-tos and kind of... (laughs) (laughs) And very random structure um, that was... I mean, viewed in a literary sense, highly original. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced that form of originality is is really uh, something valuable in a computer programming context. At least, maybe not not a pedagogical <laughs> one. Yeah, he was very critical of my breaking things down into like modules and whatnot and using subroutines. And he didn't understand why I was doing that. And I was like, this is really a drag, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can, we can get that sometimes too. Like uh, people will advocate for God modules and uh, things that go on for ages and ages. But uh, <laughs> but I want to kind of turn this a, a little bit uh and maybe maybe the software thing would be a good jumping off point too, because um, sometimes it just strikes me that a lot of the things about the Copyright Act in general are just you know kind of unfair. For example, mm. it's it it was written for uh, books at first, and it has since um, let's say metastasized into basically every other kind of uh, expression that one could think of, including software, and basically. People consider software to be copyrighted if it's released, even though generally what we get from major companies are just binaries that are created from the software code that's actually useful. So, you know, we can't actually learn from that. Mm. And then another one that kind of bends back to this is that uh, copyright is essentially, at least until January 1st of this year, is essentially forever. You know, like we just got mm-hmm. 1923 back, but who, who's to say we're not going to get another extension in, in uh, some of the years. And it's just like, um, it strikes me the same way you're talking about um, kind of proportionality, you know, like we, we punish people for these things uh, with career death, but there's also really no light at the end of the tunnel in most contexts for mm-hmm. this kind of expression based on things that are created and ostensibly incentivized for public use to benefit the public to you know add to the public domain um and so do you think there's anything in terms of um the copyright act that we could change to uh more facilitate uh well i guess to facilitate plagiarism yeah 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 yeah, yeah. well i mean like look i i couldn't agree with you more Right. I mean, and this is something that's bothered me for a long time, especially as someone coming from from an arts background uh, into law school sort of gave me, I think, somewhat different perspective on uh, on the concept of a work and on the sort of experience of producing works, especially producing works in in different media. And the reality is that most of the people who come into copyright scholarship and who engage in copyright policy have experience exclusively with literary works. And so that's sort of the framework. That's the the model that they use for thinking about a work of authorship. But I think that's a really kind of intellectually deprived way of thinking about the ontology of copyright protection and of works 
of authorship because the reality is that works in different media are fundamentally different in really profound ways that make kind of the metaphorical translation of kind of concepts from one subject area matter to another really ineffective, counterproductive, and unhelpful conceptually in thinking about how to accomplish the ostensible goals of of copyright policy. You know, and you mentioned software protection. I mean, this is one of the most egregious, right? Because I mean, effectively, soft computer software is is protected as a literary work, which is just bonkers. Right? I mean, the idea that a computer program is meaningfully conceptualized in relation to a work of literature or even just a, a kind of a traditional written work at all totally fails to account for what a computer software is intended to do. So, why people create it in the first place, right? I mean, you write a program to accomplish a goal. You don't write a program to like, you know, entertain usually. <laughs> entertain, yeah, read it for entertainment. That's just it's, it's a total misunderstanding of the purpose of of what you're doing, you know. And, and I and, and I think that that using kind of paradigms from literature to think about software. I mean, like I'm certainly not the first person to say that this is just a terrible idea and as a consequence produces terrible outcomes because, you know, like as critical as I might be of copyright in literary works, at the very least we developed our doctrinal framework for thinking about them in relation to the actual works we were talking about. Right. So you might disagree about what the right outcome is. You might disagree about what the right approach to achieving it is. But at the very least, people are having the same conversation about like the actual thing that they were talking about. But then to take that set of kind of socially grounded, institutionally determined and kind of market driven set of approaches to thinking about a particular category of endeavor and just apply it willy-nilly to something that has nothing to do with it. I mean, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> right? I mean, who's whose crazy idea was and this? And then right? and then, and then in we, um uh with software like you know video games just as one huge example of this being counterproductive is like that is a entertainment mode of expression or it doesn't necessarily have to be entertainment because mm. like nonfiction books exist too but like mm. it more precisely by a degree tracks the literary form that copyright is meant to take but we are basically losing them left and right and making their preservation mm -hmm. illegal in service of copyright to corporations that aren't yeah even making yeah. them available no, i mean it's it's it yeah it's totally nuts i mean it makes no sense at all and, and, you know, I mean, from my perspective, you know, copyright reform really ought to be about thinking about what we wanted to accomplish, right? You know, and, and I think that, you know, there is this sort of ideological battle 
going on out there, you know, which is often perceived as being like, you know, kind of pro copyright and anti copyright people. And, you know, some people believe really strongly in the rights of the author and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And other people, you know, think that's terrible. And, you know, like, look, I'm all in favor of open source. I'm all in favor of people choosing to make things available. I believe in altruism, right? I believe in, you know, I believe in whatever works. At, at the end of the day. So, I, you know, it's not that I like have anything in particular against copyright protection, right? I mean, when it works and accomplishes the goals that we want it to accomplish, I mean, great, go for it, right? I mean, like, let's have a robust conversation about when copyright policy is effective at accomplishing our policy goals and when it isn't. And, you know, to the extent that copyright is functioning as a efficient incentive for people to generate new works of authorship and an efficient incentive for them to bring those works of authorship to market and is ultimately generating social surplus in the form of works that people want to consume. And, you know, the term is ending at a kind of socially reasonable point in time. I mean, great, have at it, right? Like that's, that's perfectly sensible competition policy to my mind, right? I mean, like, you know, we're solving market failures and reducing transactions costs. And that's, that's great. That's like, that's what government's supposed to be doing, right? So let's have at it, you know, be my guest, right? But like, no one wants to have that conversation, right? I mean, everyone wants to like fight over Mickey Mouse, these, you know, yeah, fight over Mickey Mouse and like, talk about it in these like, incredibly sort of um, uh, atavistic yeah 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 it's like it's like my way or the highway it's like any compromise and i lose it's like no there's there's tons of room for compromise where people invested in this kind of policy marketplace can get what they need and what's what's actually economically relevant to them while still effectively sort of liberalizing the market in works of authorship for the general public and for advocates of other kinds of use. And I just wish people were a little bit more like chill about it, you know, like don't freak out about somebody having a different opinion than you. They might be right. You never know. You know, I mean, I've been convinced by people plenty of times, right? I mean, like, you know, like I'm, I tend to be an open access kind of person. And like, for example, when I first heard about copyright and standards, like industrial standards, for example, I was like, oh, that sounds like a bad idea to me. Like, I don't, I don't really get that. Shouldn't those be public, right? They're kind of, they look like laws. They smell like laws. They act like laws. I think they're laws. I think they shouldn't be protected by copyright, right? But then my friend, Emily Bremer, who's like an admin long specialist, she pointed out to me, like, look, these are, these are standards that are only relevant to a tiny subset of people, right? Participants in the actual market in question, right? They're super expensive to actually generate them because you're like, you know, thousands of pages long and like ultra detailed and everything has to be done just right and like gone over by a zillion people, right? So there's a big investment in, in terms of generating these things. And, you know, and there's exceptions for like, if members of the public need it, well, you know, it's basically available in a semi-usable format. You can get the parts you want for free without having to pay for it. But at the end of the day, copyright kind of effectively functions as a way to say that if you want to participate in this marketplace as a 
business like engaged in this this field, you're going to have to contribute to the generation of these standards that benefit everybody, right? And that means financially contribute to their production. And, and if you don't, you're not going to have access in the way that other people would. Now, is like the only way to solve the problem? I mean, no, sure. There's, you know, the government could just pay for it, right? I mean, there's other ways to solve it. But I mean, is it an absurd way to solve the problem? No, I mean, I, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it, it, it's at least a reasonable way of thinking about what's at stake. And like, I'm, I'm cool with that. Right. Like, I mean, like that, that is a fair point to me. I mean, yeah, I agree. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of hard to <laughs> have a kind of a back and forth when I agree with basically everything you're saying, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, another way we could uh, take this, uh, I think we're, getting close to time here, but um, you once described your uh, take on uh, copyright as socialistic uh, to me. Uh, (laughs) uh, Must you be a socialist to uh, uh, subscribe to your view? Uh, What what, what do you think this offers the uh, non-socialist? Yeah, I'm probably a little tongue-in-cheek about that, right? But, you know, I like to describe myself as like a a cynical anarchist, right? So I, I believe that, you know, all of these, <laughs> I'm convinced that there are many um, distribution problems that are solvable, but only if we don't have politics. And unfortunately, <laughs> we're stuck with politics. So maybe a lot of those oh, we didn't ha- We didn't for a month. So the government will shut down. <laughs> so... <laughs> you know, I mean, what's my perception of copyright? Well, you know, in one sense, copyright is kind of a kind of kind of quasi socialist concept in the sense that, you know, the nominal argument in favor is that it's a regulatory policy intended to maximize social welfare. Well, I mean, you know, that's I mean, in a, at a high level of abstraction, that's basically the definition of socialism. Right. So, I sure. mean, <laughs> now is that, I how mean, I'll give that to you. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, is that how people really think about it? No, not in practice, but I mean, come on. Right. If you want to be serious about sort of what we're trying to accomplish when we do copyright policy, we, we at least say we're doing socialism. Right. I mean, we might not be, but that's how we describe it. So, you know, like we, I, I think it makes sense to at least acknowledge that sort of rhetorical reality, even if it's not reflected in the actual policy on the ground. Well, hopefully one day we'll uh, get back to that. Maybe get a little bit of uh, Copyright Act of 1790 up in here. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, okay. absolutely. Well, I, I, I suggest you talk to my friend Zvi Rosen about the Copyright Act of 1790. 1790. He, he, he knows more about that than I will ever. Yes, I'm very much aware of his work. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Um, I don't think he turned me on to it, but uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, Thorvalds Fulberger, uh, the, the first register of oh, copyright. Yeah. Uh, he yeah, wrote a yeah, book yeah. Uh, that's like just a reference work of everything that uh, they talked about in the Congress and all the different stuff. Mm-hmm. It's on the, it's on the internet archive. Have you ever read Ben Kaplan's, uh, uh, um, a unhurried view of copyright? I haven't. Okay. I'll I'll send, uh, you should. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Strong recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think you would like it very much. Okay. Um, but 
I think those are my um, main questions. You answered the ones I thought were clever in your, just without me having to ask them. So uh, thanks for Excellent. thanks for you know, taking the time to talk with me, Brian. I'm uh, happy to guest host the show. Great, Mike. The pleasure was all mine. I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to talk to you after corresponding with you on the internet for so long. Yeah, I mean, uh, you you were very uh, influential to me because uh, I, I just personally got into copyright over the last year after I read uh, The Public Domain by James Boyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I actually stole <laughs> yeah. it from my old job. <laughs> yeah. I was just, I always thought that was ironic, but then um, I just started reading more about it and I came across your work at, it, you know, Plagiarism is Not a Crime and it was very um, eye-opening to me. It was, part, it was part of my awakening to the need for the revolution. <laughs> Overturn, burn, International copyright is, well, it's Excellent. not entirely wrong, but uh, Burns specifically is wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's incredibly gratifying to me to know that anything I'm doing is having an impact on people's thinking. So I, I really appreciate your taking the time to read those papers and think about them and ask me questions. Okay. Well, good show, everybody. <laughs> Nightvale? What is this studio? What is this damnable studio? Nightvale? I do not know if you can hear me. This is Cecil, and I do not know where I am. It is clearly a radio studio, but the walls are covered in blood? And instead of dials and buttons on the soundboard, there is just animal viscera glistening under the green LED lights. I hope this microphone works. Am I in hell? Dana? Dana, can you hear me? Listeners, if you can hear the sound of my voice, please contact the sheriff's secret police. There is so much blood, it is seeping into my shoes. There are... Oh, masters of us all, no teeth scattered across the floor. The window into the control booth is shattered and there is a swath of skin and a fistful of long clumping hair hanging from a sharp glass point. I do not know if this is even Night Vale. I know that I can hear the sandstorm raging outside. There is a low buzz and deep hum that might be my own heart ready to tear itself from my chest in horror or grief. I cannot know which. There is a photo, a single photo of a man on the desk here. He is wearing a tie. He is not tall or short, not thin or fat. His hair and nose are like mine. But his eyes... His eyes are black as obsidian, and his smile... No, it is not a smile. He must be wicked, this man. Dear Nightvale, 
please pray in your bloodstone circle for me. And pray, too, that no one should ever have to meet this vicious wretch of a man. I want to be home, Night Vale. Oh, Cecil, you fool. The Vortex. The Vortex is still there, but here it is white. Okay, dear listeners, from this vile, vile place, I leave you to your prison. But before I go, because I am a radio professional and it is sitting right here on this blood-spattered desk, I give you the weather. Always give credit where credit is due. Didn't write it, don't say it's by you. Just copy the credit along with the word. Or else you'll come off like an arrogant jerk Always give credit where credit belongs We know that you didn't write Beethoven songs Pretending you did makes you look like a fool Unless you're Beethoven, in that case it's good A transparent system makes cheating unwise Simplest web search exposes your lies. No one wants their reputation besmirched, which happens to liars when they are web searched. Proper citation will make you a star. It shows that you know that we know who you are. Plagiarization will only harm you, so always give credit where credit is due. Hello there, Desert Bluffs. It is Kevin again. I told you I would be back. I don't know where I went, but I think that I met my double. The vortex is gone now, but as I was returning, I passed a man. A man who looked just like me. I smiled and said, Hello there, friend. I hugged this man, and he hugged me back. We shared a moment in this other world. I am not sure to where that spiral of space and time took me, nor through where I traveled, but I am certain that there must be more to us than just us, and that there is another place, another time, where things could have been different, better, worse. But let's not think on woulds, coulds, and shoulds. I am just happy I am alive. I am happy my other is alive. You are alive. We We are alive. Outside, the winds are subsiding. Our doubles have left us as the sand has left us. The sun is rising again just as it is setting. Our second sunrise collides with the sunset. Let's reflect on this. Let us reflect on our lives and where we will be tomorrow. We lost our other selves, Desert Bluffs, but we gained new perspective. Tomorrow, we'll wake again, work again, live again. We are home, all of us, together. My mouth, your ears. We have each other. And as always, until next time, Desert Bluffs, until next time.